Countrywide on ABC Radio. Support businesses are going to go to the wall just like dairy farmers will. We've seen the whole agricultural community come out. Once people leave communities, they don't. They generally don't return. Countrywide. Don't worry about me. Go and speak to your farmers. We're already losing businesses. Get out there and speak to your farmers and your farmers. Countrywide. The politics of food and farming on ABC Radio. Hi and welcome to Countrywide. I'm Jessica Schremmer, coming to you from Wurundjeri country in Melbourne. Today, rice growers are battling the worst duck problem in decades. When they get so bad, they actually put holes in the rice. And um, so even once the rice is established, they'll keep flying into those holes uh, into January. And they'll sort of work out from those holes and the holes will just keep getting bigger and bigger. More on that story coming up soon and... The Italian confectionery giant behind Ferrero Rocher in Nutella is pulling out a million trees at its $70 million farm in Australia. But first up, farming parents say they are paying tens of thousands of dollars a year out of pocket for nannies, while metropolitan parents who have access to daycare centers receive a federal subsidy. The federal child care minister hasn't committed to including private nannies for rural families in the child care subsidy, instead saying reviews by the ACCC and Productivity Commission will look at the issue. Agricultural groups have been urging governments to act on the child care shortage to help plug agricultural labor gaps. Reporter Fiona Broom spoke with Australian Minister for Early Childhood Education and Care, Anna Lee, and started by asking Dr. Ali if childcare is in crisis in regional Australia. We're looking at uh, the early childhood education and sector and care sector right across the nation, including looking at accessibility for uh, early childhood education and care in rural and remote Australia, recognising that uh, according to the uh, interim report of the ACCC, the market is not being attracted into those areas. And so the number of the reviews that we've got, the ACCC review, the Productivity Commission review, are all about looking at how can we reform the system to ensure that uh, parents in rural, regional and remote have access to early childhood education and care. How are early childhood education and care services regulated in Australia? You can get care through different levels of government, for example, local government or state government. Well, it's quite a, well let's talk about the market first because it's quite a mixed market. So you have large private providers, smaller private providers, large not-for-profits, small not-for-profits, community-run, council-run. Council then you have centre-based, you have in-home care and you have family day care. The way they are all regulated is through the Australian Children's Education and Care Quality Framework. At the state level, state regulators will look at things like the physical requirements for centres. The um, agricultural industry industry group grain growers uh, mm. say that childcare shortages are making agricultural labour workforce shortages worse um, and they've brought the food industry and the early learning industries together at round tables to try to find some solutions to these shortages. Have you been involved with these talks? Oh absolutely, I've met with the grain growers, had, had some lengthy conversations with them and um, have made that commitment to listen to their grievances and I completely understand what, those, what their issues are and have assured them that the work that we're doing in the reviews 
uh, and the work that we're doing in terms of the things that we've introduced around the workforce packages, uh, the things that we're uh, looking at. We have, a, for example, um, a community childcare fund, which is $575 million. That supports 900 services, and 60% of those services are in regional areas. We've just announced uh, $16 million in the latest round for 47 services. Three of them are in Victoria. And next year, we have a larger round being released. And this is to fund uh, the establishment and ongoing delivery of services in rural and regional areas or in areas where they're experiencing a lack of supply. So communities uh, have also been calling for more flexibility regarding who can care for children. So going back to that question of um, skills for workers, um, they're, mm. they're also talking about flexibility about where children can be cared for. So, for example, allowing um, family in-home daycare providers to operate for example, at a community centre or in a farm building, is this something that you would consider uh, changing regulations in regards to? I think what we're talking about here is the flexibility of service delivery, flexibility that meets the needs of parents, whether it's in-home care, whether it's mobile care, whether it's in uh, uh, and, and in locations that meet the needs of parents and um, meet the kind of the convenience needs of parents. In terms of uh, quality, the, the best thing that we can do about quality is ensure that we have a workforce. And what we're doing there is we've got the fee-free TAFE, and I'm pleased to say that early childhood education and care has been one of the biggest uptakes in fee-free TAFE. So we have a pipeline of qualified people coming through. And just in regards to the childcare subsidy, uh, many mm-hmm. families in regional areas tell us that they're in the option for childcare is a private nanny. They don't have access to centres or other forms of care. Mm-hmm. Why does the federal childcare subsidy not cover costs for nanny or nannies or au pairs um, for people who can't access centres in regional areas? The ACCC and the Productivity Commission reviews are canvassing everything across the whole sector and looking at reform across the whole sector with the, the objective being to have an affordable and accessible and quality early childhood education and care sector that works for every child and every parent. So would you consider changing the subsidy to include uh, support for people who, whose only option is um, private care? I think that would be something that the Productivity Commission and the ACCC will look at when they look at um, provision and accessibility of care in rural, regional and remote areas. That's Federal Minister for Early Childhood Education and Care, Anna Lee, speaking with Fiona Broom. And you can read more on that story online at abc.net.au slash rural. Now, Australia's hazelnut industry is reeling from news that the Ferrero Group is giving up on a 70 million investment to grow the nut in southern New South Wales. The Italian confectionery company behind brands like Ferrero Rocher, Nutella and Kinder Surprise planted a million trees near Narendra, but now is ripping them out and putting the property up for sale. Emily Doak has more. When the Australian arm of the Ferrero Group launched its $70 million hazelnut production venture in the Riverina a decade ago, it was lauded as a shot in the arm for the local industry. A million trees were planted by 2018, but the company says yields have fallen below expectations, making the project no longer commercially viable. Executive Officer of Hazelnut Growers of Australia, Trevor Ranford, is disappointed the trees are being pushed out. 
extremely disappointed, not only for you know the industry in general, but certainly for all of those uh, people that had been employed and engaged in building uh, such a uh, impressive uh, orchard and business. Uh, so you know a lot of hard work and uh, toil and uh, an effort went into it. But uh, you know the decisions are being made by uh, people uh, who own the business outside of Australia and uh, you know they're making those decisions on you know, return on investment and uh, I suppose the current uh, climatic or environmental uh, and financial uh, situation that exists in the world at the present moment. Selling agent Matt Childs from CBRE expects the 2,600 hectare property with more than 11,000 megalitres of water entitlements will fetch more than $80 million. And he says the fact that it's free of hazelnut trees is an advantage. Sometimes these buyers would need to go and remove those trees themselves, which is a significant investment just in doing that, uh, and also a significant amount of time to prepare the land so that it's ready for that new planting. So this is all being fast-tracked. It's being offered as a reversion opportunity, as in the land has been reverted from hazelnut trees back to a, a you know black uh, irrigated platform, but not to mention also installation of... The irrigation infrastructure takes time as well. You expect that it's going to be of interest for permanent horticulture plantings. Is there much interest and what's the market like in that sector at the moment in your experience? We're still a few weeks away from knowing the end result, but so far we're pretty satisfied with how it's performing. I mean, there's parts of the agribusiness market at the moment that are struggling, especially around livestock and those operators. But it seems like the institutional and corporate space, particularly around horticulture and particularly with strong and reliable irrigation water entitlements, that part of the market still has quite a bit of strength. Trevor Ranford from Hazelnut Growers of Australia says while the exit of Ferrero from growing nuts locally is a blow, there's still potential for the Australian industry to grow and fill gaps in supply. As the other producers uh, increase, then uh, maybe their volumes uh, can be utilised by Ferrero uh, in, in their processing facilities. And you know, I think the important thing is that some of the genetic material that uh, they brought into uh, and, and planted within that orchard has been distributed through their nursery to, to other growers uh, around Australia. So um, you know, there's that opportunity to see... Uh, you know, ongoing expansion of those uh, varieties that uh, were considered uh, you know, most valuable for their confectionery type business. Trevor Ranford from Hazelnut Growers of Australia, ending that report from Emily Dog. What's on your dinner plate? Countrywide, the politics of food and farming. Now rice growers are reporting the worst duck problems they've battled in decades. And many people have been forced to resow crops that have been wiped out. Ducks have bred up in massive numbers since last year's wet weather, and despite their best efforts, growers are struggling to keep them at bay. Angus Worley spoke with Elder Swanhill agronomist Pat Conlon about the problem. The duck numbers are huge at the moment. At a sunrise meeting earlier this season, they quoted that last year we had one million ducks, and this year it's four million. So. The pressure is certainly up there. One local grower out at Cunningyuk tells me that this year's duck pressure is the worst he's seen in his 44 years of growing rice by a long way. Yeah, okay. So that that's a big, big statement then that, uh, yeah, more than four decades of growing rice and this is the very worst. 
Yeah, it certainly is. Like it's just getting to the stage where rice bays are actually getting wiped out overnight. Uh, and ducks are probably a lot smarter than we actually give them credit for. So often we'll be, you know, check them at similar times. So you might check them before you go to bed and when you get up first thing in the morning. And even one grower on top of that pays a uh, shooter to come out of town. And from all reports, they're not seeing many at all, hardly any. But still, over the last three nights, we've had three bays or so wiped out uh, overnight. Um, and sort of we're thinking they're probably coming in around 2 to 4 o'clock in the early morning. Right. So if you've got entire bays that are getting wiped out, I mean, is that rice going to come back or is it is it done for? Yeah, so it's actually there's a lot of resos going on at the moment to the extent that the the local seed depot, uh, you actually can't get rice. You have to wait till the final day to get rice just because they're so banked up. Yeah, okay, so you can't get rice. And, and is it getting too late if you were going to attempt to resow? Oh, look, it is getting late, but um, to an extent, like we're already a fair way in um, cost-wise. Uh, so it's also about making some of that money back as well. But, yeah, so we're trying to do whatever we can, like we're using lights and gas guns, plenty of shooters, but, yeah, the numbers are just huge. You do hear some people say that, you know, you, you can get the shooters in and then that will deter the ducks and they might not come back, but it, it sounds like what you're saying is that that's not the case? If you talk to the old cockies, they tell you that you, you've got to go really hard on them early, but there's just so many numbers this year that it's just it's becoming really hard to control. And even growers that are going around, you know, all sorts of hours in the morning, the ducks just keep coming back. So there's, there's really only so much you can do. So it really must oh, be incredibly frustrating. It must have people just tearing their hair out. Yeah, well, yeah, as I was saying, there's, there is a lot of re-sowing going on and that hurts. And, you know, even if you re there's no guarantee that the ducks aren't going to smash you again. It sounds like there really aren't a lot of good options then. Uh, not particularly, mate. you just got to keep on to them. And um, the, the other problem is that when they get so bad, they actually put holes in the rice. And um, so even once the rice is established, they'll keep flying into those holes uh, into January and they'll sort of work out from those holes and the holes will just keep getting bigger and bigger. Okay, so pockets of the crop where there's just, just nothing growing. Yeah, that's right, yeah. And is it just the case that obviously last year it just didn't seem to stop raining, which was great, great breeding conditions for all sorts of animals? And is that what's happened with the ducks, that they just built up in massive numbers and they're still there? Yeah, so just with all the flood water in last year, it's plenty of bred up. And, I mean, the same goes for snails as well. I mean, we're starting to find uh, snails in paddocks which actually weren't in rice last year. And typically you do find snails in rice on rice, but... Given all the flood water, these paddocks were effectively inundated and the snails seem to have got a life cycle in and hatched, uh, laid eggs, and um, now they're showing up in this year's rice crops. So, yeah, all sorts of issues coming out of last season. And with the ducks, is it in terms of the area that you cover, is it particular pockets that are worse than others or is it just a, a widespread problem? Oh, no, so we, we sort of cover east of Swan Hill, but even out at Denny Waylock hearing some shocking stories. So, yeah, it seems to be very widespread. That was Elder Swan Hill agronomist Pat Conlon speaking there with Angus Worley. If you've been looking for timber for a DIY project or home renovation, you'd likely came across the high demand for the building material. And demand is continuing to rise, but so is the rate of wildfires wiping out timber-producing forests across the globe. 
And Australia is among the countries that has suffered the worst, according to research published in the journal Nature Geoscience. It warns that global timber production is under significant threat. A new professor, David Lindenmeyer, said the study looked at how much timber-producing forest has been lost to fire over the past two decades. It's about 35, between 25 and 35 million, which is about the size of Great Britain. What areas of the globe, and I understand Australia was one of the, the worst affected, where the most was lost? Yes, yeah, so if you look at just total area, Russia, Canada and the US did very badly, but they also had the most forests on the planet. But once you start to look by proportion of the amount of forest that's lost, Portugal is the worst and Australia is second worst. So what that means is by proportion, Australia is losing more of its wood production forest to extreme or high severity wildfire than any other place on the planet except Portugal. Now, does this include any forest? Is this just uh, forests that have been set aside for timber harvesting or for timber plantations? It's wood production native forests and plantations. So this is the, the real kicker here. Both plantations and native forests are highly susceptible to high severity fire. And therein lies some of the challenges for us. We actually need to think deeply about where we get our timber from and how we manage those plantations and native forests, which are now very flammable. Because, uh, of course, this is looking back over forests that has already been lost, but everything is pointing to this going in an upward trajectory. So there will be more lost into the future at an increasing rate? That's correct. And particularly in the last 10 years, we've seen a very steep increase in the rates of loss. So globally, prior to about 2015, we were losing a just a bit under 1 million hectares of wood production forest every year. Now it's more than tripled to around about 3 million per year. So this really is a, a major kick in the guts, as it were, for thinking about where we're going to get our timber. We know that native forests that are logged and then regenerated are very flammable for up to 70 years. We know that plantations are also very flammable. And so we need to start to embrace new technologies to be able to detect fires much more quickly and be able to suppress those fires much more quickly. Because as you say, this has huge implications for timber supply, which we know, you know, in Australia, we've already had issues with that in, in recent years. And the, one of the big challenges with replacement is uh, you put a sapling in and it, it will take years before it is at a point where it can be cut down for timber use. That's right. But it's a particularly big issue for native forests because it takes much, much longer to grow crops of trees in native forests, up to 80 sometimes even 100 years. And the chances of trees growing old enough and trees growing long enough before they get hit by wildfire means that we've got to think more strategically about where we get our timber from in plantations. Plantations, we can turn over the crop much faster and that means there's a much, much greater chance of getting a crop before fire. But plantations are also flammable, just like logged and regenerated native forests. And that means that we have to design plantations very carefully to reduce the spread of fire through them and we have to be using our new technologies to detect fires more quickly and then suppress them more rapidly. And that's through the use of things like drones and um, AI. We're already starting to see a bit of that being utilised in fire detection and suppression. Not only drones, not only AI, but also things like lightning strike modelling because we know that there are parts of landscapes that are much more susceptible to ignitions from dry lightning, but also to use our new insights into the flammability of vegetation to understand where places are very likely to, 
whether the ignition places that are likely to, to start high severity wildfires. So there's ways of using new technologies coupled with better understandings of how ecosystems work and how their flammability changes through time to do a much better job in tackling these issues with severe fire which is a greater and greater challenge, not only in Australia, but worldwide. Well, I guess one of the things that is being suggested here going forward is to look at uh, fast-growing and less flammable tree species. And uh, I know that, for example, where I am in the southeast of South Australia, Western Victoria, there's a lot of radiata pine uh, that is planted for timber production. You say there should be other species looked at that are less flammable? I think that depends on where you are. Remember this is a global study. Certainly in Australia we know that the the, uh, radiata pine plantations are extremely valuable. Plantations in Australia produce 90% of the nation's sawn timber already and in some states like Victoria and Western Australia that will quickly shift to 100%. What I think is really important in an Australian context is how we design those plantations to make sure that they're not contiguous, i.e. that means that there's places that uh, the plantations are broken up, for example, with some grazed areas in between, and we don't put our plantations close to human habitations so that we create extra fire risks for people in rural Australia. Then we have to couple that with the use of new technologies to help us detect those ignitions very quickly and then suppress them very rapidly. Professor David Lindenmeyer from the ANU Fenner School of Environment and Society speaking with Selena Green. Now, if you are a fan of blueberries, you might like this next story. Western Australia's biggest blueberry grower is getting much bigger. And so is the size of the fruit. The fishers already have 65 hectares of blueberries near Jinjin, just north of Perth. But they plan to gradually quadruple the size of their operation over the next four to five years. And as Richard Hudson discovered, they are confident about the future because of the varieties they grow, emerging export markets and the success of a brand new mechanical harvester. If you've bought blueberries recently, you'll have noticed they're selling for between, say, two and three dollars a punnet, which is relatively cheap. And some farmers are saying at that price they just can't make any money. But Marek Fisher doesn't really care about the current prices. The reason why I have such confidence in growing these varieties in Australia and expanding our farms to the, to the proportion that we're, we're talking is because the size, the quality, the taste, the bloom, especially the size, allows us to provide the Australian consumer with a brand new product of which they already know it's a blueberry. And we can put these berries into the market and overshadow existing producers producing one or two gram berries, whereas these berries are five, seven, eight, up to 10, 15 grams. The breeder that we have aligned with has the current world record for the largest blueberry. The Guinness World Record, it's currently at 18.6 grams, I believe. And it's from a breeder in, in WA And at 18.6 grams, one 125-gram punnet would end up with seven berries in it. That's the sort of difference in product that we can start looking at doing. And if we could provide that to the whole country, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you plant this many berries? Earlier this year, the fishers started exporting small quantities of their biggest blueberries to Southeast Asia. And Marek sees a lot of potential in export markets. That's why they're constantly planting different varieties of blueberries that mature at different times of the year. 
It's the big ones, though, that fetch the good prices overseas. Hong Kong and the Singapore markets, they love their jumbo fruit. And their jumbo specification is 18 millimetres plus. We're providing fruit at 25 millimetres plus in a super jumbo package, which is unseen of, unheard of, for, to be quite frank, unheard of returns. So it does cost us a lot of money to get it there. We're, eight, we're air freighting out of Perth Airport about uh, 20 pallets a week at the moment. But even with the returns that we're getting, we're quite happy to continue doing that. How do berries, blueberries hold up longer term though? Sending them by air would be relatively expensive. Have you looked into sending them by sea? Yeah, we have. Our joint venture partners are a South African company that... Uh, they sea freight blueberries from the Cape and Johannesburg 50 days by boat into Europe. And generally it's, it's packed, but also unpacked, and they go to pack houses in Europe. But you know, when you can sea freight something for 55 days, that is a huge bonus for us. Singapore is five days by boat, which would probably be a, be a 10 day from farm to customer once you add in customs and, and trucking down and, and all of that. So if we can, if they can do 55 days, we could do 10, 20 days to most of the major ports in Asia. This blueberry farm was established in 2012 by Marek's dad, Derek, who used to be a geologist. It sounds like Derek's still not afraid to try new things. And that's why they've just bought a mechanical harvester. And this one here is the first one being used on blueberries in WA. Um, it's an oxbow harvester from built in Washington State in northwest US. We're on a learning curve, but so far it's working very well. And we better keep walking, otherwise it's going to harvest us. It's going to run us over. <laughs> <laughs> they call it a straddle harvester. It's like a grape harvester. The ripe fruit falls falls off the plants onto what are fish plates and then they drop down on the conveyors which take it to the back and it goes into trays. So this machine arrived in March, it's only been working for the last couple of months. It takes about five people to drive and work alongside it, but each machine can replace lots and lots of hand pickers. The cost of harvesting is probably 10% if not less compared to hand harvesting fruit. So um, we, at this point in time, it's costing us about 50 cents a kilo, and these are on young plants. We believe that'll probably halve again, you know, 50 cents at the moment versus an average of about $6 a kilo by hand harvesting. Wow. So you're looking at expanding. Does that mean you're looking at getting more harvesters? Absolutely. We've only got one at the moment, and after this season we will be ordering one or two more. We've got eight new varieties of blueberries here. Most of them have been bred for machine harvesting. But Derek's son, Marek, plans to mechanise more than just harvesting. Part of his expansion plan is to reduce costs on just about every job on the farm. Whether it's pruning, weed maintenance, spraying, maintenance of the, of the structures... You know, there was a lot of planning in initially that went into, into what we're doing and a lot of foresight has gone into how we built this particular bird net that we're in at the moment. Bird net number one, we made some mistakes. We put plants in the ground, which we won't do again. We put shorter rows, you know, so when you, when you go towards a mechanical, I guess, mentality, you can't just go 
off existing projects and, and think that you can just change everything immediately. You know, we, we've made our mistakes. We've been in blueberries now for 12, 13 years and we didn't wake up yesterday and go, let's do machine harvest on, on all of our existing farms. We won't be able to fit out these machines into the seven and a half hectares of plastic tunnels that we have because they just don't fit. There's no machines available. We have designed this bird net structure that we're in at the moment. So eventually we can GPS all the lines, all of the weed maintenance will be done by autonomous vehicles. All of the, the spraying will eventually be done by autonomous vehicles. And the idea of that is you're going to need a lot less workers, I'd imagine. Massively a lot less workers. <laughs> Derek Fisher with his son Marek, who is managing the expansion of their Westenberry company at Regan's Ford, just north of Perth. And by 2028, they hope to have about 250 hectares of blueberries. That's Countrywide for this week. I'm Jessica Schremmer. Thanks for your company. If you'd like to read more on the stories you've heard, head online to abc.net.au slash rural. Bye for now.